Hey everyone, it's been a while since I've recorded another podcast episode. Here in the UK, we're still in lockdown, and I think that's kind of messed with my creative process. Just trying to figure out how to exist, I guess, in these new normals that COVID-19 has brought for all of us. But one thing that the lockdown has brought me is my rediscovered love for reading. And so these next few episodes will be on a book that I've I found online. It's it's a book that I've I read when I was much younger and I guess I didn't appreciate it as much as I do reading it now. So I hope you'll all enjoy this reading that I I'm going to be posting for each chapter. Just a disclaimer though, I'm not a professional reader, so if I do get some pronunciations wrong, I do sincerely apologize, especially for the indigenous Fijian names. I feel like names have so much power, and if I do mispronounce it, I feel that I displace that power that the name carries. Nakwakalebo. Ratusukuna, Soldier, Statesman, Man of Two Worlds, by Derek Scar. Forward. Ratusukuna Sukuna was the best equipped Fijian leader in the 20th century. He was born a chief of the Royal House of Mbau. His grandfather was a cousin of Ratuseru the Kumbau, the Tuiviti, who with several other chiefs ceded Fiji to Great Britain. His mother was the eldest child of Twinayau, the paramount chief of Lao, and as Vasulevo of Lao, his chiefly status was greatly enhanced. His work in the Native Lands Commission, which occupied most of his working life, gave him the unique insight into all the land-owning Matangalis and Yavuses, and he thereby became the authority on all matters Fijian. In scholarship, he was primus into Paris. He graduated from Wadham College, Oxford, and was a barrister at law of the Middle Temple, London. When only a handful of Fijians had even entered a secondary school overseas, and none had reached a university. His university studies were interrupted by the First World War, crossed the English Channel, and joined the French Foreign Legion. The citations for the award of Metael Militaire would have qualified him for a Victoria Cross in the British Army. And it left no doubt that he was indeed a hero, a man of noble birth, a soldier of heroic deeds, and a scholar of a world-renowned university were the most enviable marks of the statesman he proved to be in his later career as a civil servant, a politician, and ultimately as the first speaker of the Legislative Assembly. 
He has been described as a man of two cultures as, indeed, he was in fact the translator and intercessor in his life of these cultures. His diaries as district commissioner for Lao spend a period of intellectual incubation which later hatched a number of historic statutes when he was eventually recalled to headquarters. These statutes safeguarded the interests of the Fijians by providing a modified system of administration of their social, economic, and political life, which was codified in the Fijian Affairs Ordinance, the Native Lands Ordinance, the Native Land Trust Ordinance, and the Fijian Development Fund Ordinance. While his knowledge of these subjects were equal to none, he nevertheless maintained the common touch and left no stone unturned in consulting the people. He covered land as well as the sea with little difficulty. He was a great sailor and would spend days at the tiller of the little Tangimodhia tracing the courses of his famous grandfather, Ratumara Kapewai, in the seas around Fiji. What has been described should be sufficient to explain why Ratu Sir Lala Sukuna was such a charismatic leader, and yet the compendium of his qualities as a leader would not be complete if the fashion he first designed and wore in sandals and tailored sulu with pockets were not included. The time he spent in Oxford and France made him a connoisseur of wine and gastronome. Ratu Sir Lala Sukuna was a complete paragon of leadership virtues. While I was closely related to him and got to know him very well, I never lost my reverence for him. My admiration for the man, like good wine, improves with the years. In this volume, his biographer, Dr. Derek Scar, has successfully captured with admirable clarity the personality of this great man who did so much to bring Fiji into the 20th century. K.K.T. Mara, Prime Minister. evening, Naitasiri representatives called, went to a public dinner given by Sir Henry Scott, and then to a dance. Afterwards, the Mbau people looked in, went to bed tired out by conforming to the demands of two entirely different social systems. JLV Sukuna, Diary Entry, Levuka, 7th of August, 1933. Chapter 1 on the northern coast of Itilevu, the biggest island of Fiji, one arm of the Pacific particularly intrudes into the land. Here the sea makes a narrow bay between steep hills. Mangroves fringe it. More of them now, men say, than 90 years ago when the house of Ratusukuna's father stood in the village overlooking Vitilevu Bay. Nanukuloa is the village's name, Black Sand. 
and the house a blend of Fijian and European styles to an unusual degree for the 1890s was called Navakalewa, very broadly interpreted place of decision. The name indicated a chief's house, as did the stone-faced yavu or raised earth and foundation, the white cowries hanging from the protruding ends of the roof tree, and the way men approached it, crouching, to give the tamma when its owner appeared in the morning. Duo, oh. No Fijian would stand above his chief, personification of the Vu, or founding ancestors, and the ancestors personified by Ratusukuna's father, Ratuchoni Manraiwiwi, were unusually powerful. From them were descended ruling houses of three Matanitu, confederated chiefdoms or province as they were styled after Fiji's session to Britain in 1874, namely Lau, Dakongrove, and Bau, the preeminent state of coastal Fiji, itself a tiny island but the seat of ambitious and powerful Turangambale, high chiefs. Ratu Manraiwiwi's rank verged upon the awesome and his history was unique. His mother, Andilor Lokumbo, was a daughter of Ratutanua Visawanga, Vunivalu of Mbau, and she was also half-sister of Ratutanua's son and successor, Ratuapinisa Seru Lakumbau, who was styled as Tuiviti, or King of Fiji. He had led the chiefs who ceded Fiji, many of them reluctantly. Ratumanraiwiwi's grandmother, one of Ratutanua's many wives, was Anditalatoka, a daughter of the Tuithakau, who was head of Aisukula, the leading clan of the Konrove. Anditalatoka was acclaimed as Randilevuka, which gave her daughter, Ratumanraiwiwi's mother, honor as well as some claim to precedence among the Vunivalu's many children. As to Ratumanraiwiwi's father, he was a legend. Ratukamisesemara, called Kapaiwai, a part Lawan phrase signifying sea comber as of a great sailor. Through his mother, a daughter of the Vuanireo clan of the Tuinayau who ruled at Lakemba, Ratumara was Vasulevu Tulau, sister's son, privileged to take men and supplies pretty much as he liked. His father's mother too came from Lakemba, and his father's father was a Vunivalu of Mbau, Ratumbanuve, father of Ratutanua Visawanga. This made Ratumara classificatory brother to Visawanga's son, Ratuseru Thakumbau himself. No two men were less alike. Ratuseru was a subtle politician. His politic conversion to Christianity in 1854 brought him the support of Tongans, nominally Wesleyan in a war he was then fighting with Ratumara, among others. Younger, preternaturally reckless, Ratumara for his part comes across as a roistering, womanizing seafarer, tall and handsome with a sparkling wit. The record tells of his adventures with women, such as the two daughters of Twinayau, his classificatory mothers, since Twinayau was his classificatory grandfather, on whom he made spectacular attempts in 1843. Very good is reported as saying to the ruling chief of Mothe, who was married to one of these ladies and declined to give her up. I have your sons on board. Do you look out on the beach for their skulls? Women apart, he was famous for his dispatch. Press and regardless might have been his motto, and he traveled far. 
He was credited with having gone laughingly in search of Mborotu, mythical island paradise of the gods. The pennants flew from the yard of his hundred-foot double-hulled Ndrua across many of the sea miles around Tonga as well as Fiji. His daughter, Andimere Tuisalala, who married the merchant, William Hennings, told their son stories about Ratumara's exploits in Tonga, of how he saved his host, King George Tupo, from a planned assassination in a subjected town, for instance. The sight of a huge warrior seated on the war fence, with his face fully blackened, his streamers of tapa blown out by the wind to their full length, dressed in a manner foreign to the Tongans, the great battle-axe glistening in the sun, the handle grasped by both hands and resting on his shoulders, the otherwise motionless figure, with the exception of a slight lifting and drooping of the elbow, as if the figure was already hearing and keeping time to the death chant. This figure, sitting so motionless, and looking down on the people from the height of the fence, ready to spring upon them at any moment, so worked upon their fears and superstitions that they thought the devil himself was keeping guard over the king. Ratumara was in Tonga to escape the consequences of his heavy-handed levying in Lao as Vasulevu, such as putting Fulanga people to work collecting beach dimmer for foreign ships, for instance, while he took the trade goods paid in return. Such oppression are the poor Fijians obliged to submit to from their chiefs, at least in heathen places, as the missionary R. B. Lyth commented. Even the Lawans murmured, and there would be spoilers, the Tongans, then proposing to make permanent settlements in materially rich Fiji, had joined forces with Twinayao's sons to keep Ratumara away. Or as the Reverend Mr. Lyth preferred to put it, himself a joyful beneficiary of Tongan Wesleyan imperialism. His oppressive overbearing conduct occasioned a quarrel between him and Lakemba, which he thought, though himself in the wrong, to avenge by deeds of blood. But the Lord put a hook in his jaws and sent him away in chagrin. Though he could raise six Ndrua and three hundred fighting men, Ratumara was not a serious man. He was eccentric, as in some ways his grandson Ratusukuna was to be. He joined Rewa against the Kumbau, fled from the Tongan charge at Kamba in 1855 and spent the next four years as a wandering exile, using his seamanship to escape the Kumbau's pursuit. This gave him another nickname, Vana Aliani, Vanishing Mast. In the end, he tired of running. To profit from his kinship with the ruling chief of Nambukandra, he put in at this raw town a few miles east along the coast from Nanukuloa. As he drank his yangona, Nambukandra recalls, Ratumara said he would not have it believed he feared the Kumbau. He would go and confront the Vunivalu at Mbau. Terrible, royal Mbau of the Meke, crowded with houses and chiefs within wading distance of the Tailevu coast at low tide. Its power was due to the strong-handed self-assertion of its leaders their marriage alliances, and their consequent command of manpower and material resources from Ra and Lao. Ratumara went without haste even so. At Ovalau, he reputedly shot two of the Kumbau's emissaries, Matanivanua of the Masau and Tunitonga clans which provided spokesmen for the ruling chiefs of Mbau. If true, a flagrant breach of custom. Eventually, his young friend Ratuchoni Valata came, son of the head of Vusarandave, 
Lambati, or warrior clan. And Ratamara went back with him to Mbau in August 1859, expecting he would intercede with the Vunivalu. Instead, Ratudolata was cowed and sat silent, while in the background maneuvered Enele Maafu, leader of the Tongans, who had every reason to want the Vasulevu Tulau underground. As for Ratudakumbau himself, he was increasingly buffeted by fortune and could not fail to recognize Ratumara as a dangerous rival, while his new allies, the Wesleyan missionaries, identified the irreverent impious giant as a rebel against their Christian champion. Ratumara was condemned to be hanged. The missionaries went as far as the scaffold with him, struggling for his soul. He was insouciant to the end, according to Reverend Thomas Baker's diary. He seemed indifferent to death, though he politely expressed the hope that the Christian God would be kind to his spirit. As Baker says, in the midst of our entreaties with him, the queen came in, Andilitia Samanunu, and stooped to kiss the rebel, saying to the chief, Mara, great was our love to you, but little was your love to us. He replied promptly, Sandinasaka. She told how he had been besought by the king and others to be reconciled and live peacefully with them, but that he would not. He confirmed all she said with Sandinasaka. He entirely concurred in his sentence, saying he would have done the same had he been in the king's place. Ratumara was hanged that day, 6th of August, 1859. In former times he would have been clubbed, his novel manner of death was a concession to the new age, it being understood that this was how things were done in Bolatangani, home of men, otherwise Great Britain. By general account, Ratumara lies in a grave on the mainland opposite Mbau, wearing the uniform of a British naval officer, always a garb attractive to the seafaring chiefs of Fiji. Beneath him, according to the story cherished by Matangare Vusarandave, lie two chiefs of Vusarandave, the pectoral muscles bearing him up, electing to die with him since it was improper for so great a lord, descendant of powerful Vu, to travel unattended to Mbulu, the world beyond the grave, these warriors made the one request that they should be buried beneath his corpse. If there were indeed a resurrection, the world could then see that the power of a chief did spring from the chests of his mbati. At Nambukandra, they have a different, though possibly complementary, story. They point to a grave on the foreshore and they tell how, obedient to Ratumara's request before he sailed from Nambukandra for the last time, men from that town crept into the house where his body lay awaiting burial, substituted a different massy-draped corpse, and carried him back to Nambukandra. It would take excavation to begin to authenticate either story together with impossibly fine dating to discover whether Ratum de Viverata, that half-brother of Ratudakambau, who lies buried in the Yavu called Valimbasanga at Bau, was another who died to accompany Ratumara below the waters of Motoriki Passage, Bulu, for the departed spirits from Bau, or whether, as it is also told, Ratum de Viverata was assassinated on a different occasion. These were the stories that Ratumandraiwiwi was brought up on. He named his youngest son Doviverata, Choni Antonio Rambivi Doviverata, though the bearer was also known as Tom in New Zealand, where he was educated from schoolboy to medical man, this was easier to pronounce. 
Ratuman Raiwiwi owed his name, a unique one, to his father. In bestowing it, Ratumara revealed his frame of mind on the eve of his execution. The son was a tiny baby when the father was hanged, and his birth having been announced, Ratumara, who was eating Manrai at the time, said, Call him Manraiwiwi. Life had turned sour in Ratumara's mouth. It did so too for his son, to a lesser degree. When Ratuman Raiwiwi died in December 1920, his peace of mind had been destroyed by competing pressures from his dual role as a high chief and an official in the colonial government's Fijian administration. For much of his life, he had been adept in both roles, though. He was perhaps the best example of the striking adaptability of the Fijians, a people for whom extreme violence had so lately been integral to their political culture. Unlike his father, he steered by the changing landmarks of the new age, stifling resentment at one of the most prominent of these, the Wesleyan mission, which provided new codes of conduct. Were it not for the lotu, men were heard to say when offended, they would reach for the club and warm up the oven. As a young chief in the 1860s and early 1870s, living first in the house of his mother's full brother, Ratunraunimbaka on Motoriki, and later Edinburgh with Ratudakumbau himself, Ratumanraiwiwi went in Andrua or Kata to levy in the islands of Lomaiviti, where the Mbau chiefs raised many of their supplies. He was sent to school with Wesleyans at Navuloa Training Institute, never becoming fluent in English, but learning his lessons to better effect than Rakumbau's own sons. The youngest of these, Ratuchua Sefadelua, studied in Sydney. Ratuman Raiwiwi felt he should have gone too. He was probably the first Fijian to keep a diary, preceding in this another modern-minded young Fijian, Ratundeve Tongnivalu of the Masau clan. And he wrote letters to the government for his Dakumbau cousins when they became justifiably concerned about their future under the colonial regime. In times past, they had ranged over all coastal Fiji, laving tribute in the foundations of Navatanitawake, Burekalo, or Temple of the Rokotuimbau, leading spiritual chief of Mbau, long since suppressed by the Vunivalu or executive chief, were buried baskets of earth sent as tokens of submission from inland chiefdoms too. Now the Mbauans were virtually confined to their tiny island by the colonial government. It found Dakumbau's sons unsuitable for the administrative office that alone would have widened their opportunities because they were not amenable to discipline and they feared what would happen when their father's handsome pension would vanish with his death. Ratu Dakumbau died in February 1883 from his deathbed begging Ratuman Raiwiwi to take no vengeance on his cousins for his father's execution. The dying man said he regretted having killed Ratumara. Legends recount his disturbed dreams about the lack of leadership to be revealed by his own descendants and the leading part to be played by Ratumaras in the affairs of Fiji. Dakumbau would be succeeded by his eldest son, Ratuepelina Latikau. But the father said Ratunai Latikau could never have the actual title Vunivalu because that had been given at session to the queen. Ratunai Latikau never was installed. He lived a dissatisfied life as Rokotuitelevu, often in danger of suspension from this government office for misdemeanor 
while Ratuman Raiwiwi, who in former times would almost certainly have attempted to supersede him as ruler of Mbau, led an active career in the Fijian administration. He had entered this organization in April 1883. Through it, Fijians generally ran their own affairs, save from plantation work by the native taxation system. They paid taxes in copra, sugarcane, cotton, tobacco, and food crops, which the government sold to the highest bidder among the European trading firms and refunded any surplus cash over and above the assessment to the producers. European stipendiary magistrates had no executive authority in Fijian affairs until 1913, when they were renamed provincial commissioners. Until then, the Fijian affairs were conducted under the direct oversight of the governor through his native commissioner, Talai, by Rokutui at the head of each province, down through Mbuli at the head of districts, with councils at both levels. The theory was that each division coincided with a political entity, and each head should be a man of rank within it. Resistance resulted wherever this theory was not applied. Wherever, say, a more able individual was put over the head of men of rank, he was likely to find his house burnt around his ears or he might die. So pointed and potent was the anger of the Wu at presumptuous people. Ratumandraiwiwi went first as a clerk into the audit office. In 1889, he was sent to Nanukuloa to govern the province of Ra as Vakatawa, or governor's commissioner. Ra having no single acknowledged ruling family of its own, and in 1896, he was formally installed as full Rokotui Ra. Kneeling before the Talai to receive his staff of office while the Talai intoned, Take with this staff authority to rule in the province of Ra, to the people over whom you are placed, be as a father, lead them, teach them, feed them, take heed not to oppress them, and in all your acts, Remember that strict and solemn account which you must one day render at the judgment seat of God. Ratu Sukuna's father was a model administrator, fully conscious that he was no ordinary Fijian, but one with a vision beyond the narrow run of district politics. A tall, spare, balding man, as stern within his household as outside. He was so careful of his people's welfare that they applauded him. His taxes flowed to Suva in the produce that kept Fijians actively and gainfully locked into the market economy. And though in his time Tuka broke out again, the syncretist millennial cult of men seeking to control new circumstances by invoking the power of old gods, he had none of the troubles encountered by his two predecessors in controlling the proud, turbulent Ra people. Dark-minded, he described them to the governor in his small clear hand. He found them more interested in cementing their social bonds and political alliances by Solevu than, say, cleaning their villages to stem the infant mortality that led so many Europeans to think, not a few to hope, that Fijians would become extinct. Ratumandraiwiwi avoided the plots that had beset his two predecessors as Rokutura, both men of rank and personality, by finesse and perhaps most important by his blood ties through Ratumara Kapewai. There was no serious conflict between his two roles of chief and government official in Ra, nor was there when he was moved to Mba in 1910, though he regretted the loss of his Ra gardens and cattle runs. Ratumandraiwiwi was a great cultivator and an entrepreneur. 
He traded in bananas on the cutter, kept as many of his people's children as he could in cow's milk, and secured a large grant of land in the Kondrove from his kinsfolk Isokula during the years 1905 to 1908 when Governor Sir Everett Infin, convinced that Fijians were indeed doomed to extinction, cow's milk or not, threw open Fijian land to alienation. Conflict did arise between his roles, however, when he was sent in 1912 to his home province of Tailebu to replace dead Ratunalatikau's cricket-playing son, Ratupenaya Kandavulevu, as Rokotui Tailebu. Painful for the displaced Ratukandavulevu, this move also brought Ratumandraiwiwi face-to-face with his own genealogy. The more so because Ratukandavulevu had been defiantly installed in a hasty ceremony as Vunivalu of Mbau. If anyone had the right to that title in terms of ability, seniority, and descent in the clan, Ratumandraiwiwi felt it was he. In Ba, he was described as Nalubenandina Nabunivalu, true son of the Vunivalu. His marriage, while still a clerk in the audit office, had re-emphasized Ratumandraiwiwi's place in the ruling lineage of Mbau. At the same time, it re-knitted his father's relationship with Lau. His wife, mother-to-be of his three sons and three daughters, was Andilitiana Maopa. She was a daughter of the former Twinayau, Ratutevi Taulila Kemba, by Andi Asenada Kakua, herself a child of Ratusero the Kumbau. Ratumandraiwiwi was still posted in Suva, the capital, when their firstborn, a son, came into the world.